Amen. We're starting a new series. I'm super excited about it. I'm calling it Essential Jesus for Unsettled Days. And it's based in the book of Colossians. So grab your Bible. We'll introduce it just by reading the first couple of verses. The introduction to the book, we'll introduce it through this. So Colossians chapter one, verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father." Three things to launch us in, three things to keep in your head as we go through this epistle in the next couple of months. The city, the composer, and the church. First, the city, it's called Colossae. Colossae was part of a tri-city region there, really important area. It was a stopping point for goods that came into Ephesus and they would kind of bring them inland and the first major stopping point was Colossae. So you have all this money and all this tourism and all these, this, this kind of pathway coming into this city and it made it a very powerful city. But at the writing of this epistle, it is a city in decline. Its best days are behind it. In fact, Colossae does not exist today. Athens still does, Rome still does, Jerusalem. A lot of the ancient cities are still there, not Colossae. Why? Because of Rome. This big city, Hundreds of miles away, made a decision. If you don't know this time in history, Rome was the empire. It was probably the greatest empire ever. Ruled land from England all the way to India. That's massive for about a thousand years. Like it's unparalleled its power. And we still feel the results of the Roman empire today with laws and judicial system. There's a lot of stuff that tracks back to Rome. But one of the big ones is this, the roads they built 50,000 miles of roads. Imagine that, right? There's no paving machine. There's no excavators. It's digging, it's rock, it's unbelievable. The roads that Rome built are still used today. Like our roads, we're lucky if we get five, six years out of them and then they're junk. Not Rome, they built good roads, still used to this day. And what happened was this, it transformed the known world because now, Goods, if you had a good over in India that was very, very valuable in Athens, you could move that good over there. You couldn't do it before. So all of a sudden there's travel. People that were trapped in dead-end areas where the economy was bad, they could get up and they could move to an area that was doing a lot better. Ideas that, that were brilliant ideas didn't get stuck in some corner. They moved out and they got broad acceptance. That's what happened. It was brilliant. It transformed the world. Right? The, the only thing that can come close to it in our own mind is this, how the internet has changed our world. So if you're older than about, well, if you're 40 and up, you know this. The world is very different before the internet, correct? Anyone here still get a newspaper delivered to them? Ah, that's, yeah? Check your age right now, no. <laughs> Anyone sit and watch the 6 p.m. news? I did that all the time growing up. I don't do that anymore, right? Right? Who carries around a camera anymore? Anyone carry around a camera to catch that moment? Oh, why? Because you got a phone. A phone has replaced, the internet with the phone has replaced so many, I think there's about 50 things in our life that the phone has replaced because it connected the internet, it just transformed us. 
So that's what happened. These, this, this empire that had one condition, be at peace with us. And peace meant you don't fight and you pay your taxes. If you didn't do two, those two things with Rome, they would come and they would make an example of you and crush you. If you paid your taxes and you didn't fight, they just said, do whatever you want to do. So there's this massive, peaceful area that people could move around and do incredible things. It's brilliant, incredible, but here's what happens. Rome, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, decides we're gonna build a new road from Ephesus. And we're gonna bypass Colossae. So all of a sudden, this main line of goods and ideas and people and stuff, all of a sudden, it's not coming to Colossae anymore. What do you think happens to that city? Yeah, things change. It's in decline, right? It would be like this. It would be like Washington, D.C. decided, you know what, Interstate 5? Grants passed, they're cavemen. They're kind of a little fundamentalist. We're gonna move it. We're gonna move it to K-Falls. What happens to Grants Pass? What? We become boring Oregon. That's what happens, right? We become prospects. Like, and you might think, that'd be awesome, man. No traffic. Oh, really? Your house becomes worthless now, right? Pe businesses that use the I-5 corridor to move goods, they got to shut and go somewhere else. So they're disappearing. So then people are being foreclosed on. Man, it's just a cataclysm of one thing after another, cascading, destroying it. Just a leak that they could not stop. They were hopeless and they knew it was happening to them because of someone outside of their area. Does that sound modern at all? Decisions outside of our little city that are passed down by bigger, more powerful cities like Salem or Portland or court decisions in San Francisco that handcuff us and we're powerless to make changes because of the decisions outside of our region can make you feel hopeless and frustrated and powerless. And that's what was happening inside of this little place right here, inside of Colossae, right? And here's what happens. Into that void, nature of hates a vacuum. So into that void of this kind of vacuum, in comes the nut jobs. And I, I don't know if it's 2024, I have been getting more nut job emails than ever before. I'm like, Lord, what's going on? Okay, so I don't know if that's what's happening, so much, so, so be it. And it was two groups. One group was this. The, the weird kind of druggy, hippie, urban camper group. And then the other was a hyper-conservative, end-of-the-world, doom-and-gloom monastic monks. It'd be like taking Grant's Pass and picking up and setting it right in the middle of Ashland, right? Is there going to be a problem there? Yeah, you're going to have... F-350 deleted diesels right next to Priuses with a goddess sticker on back and a couple labradoodles. Gonna be a problem. Got people listening to NPR and the Jefferson Exchange and the other side listening to Cajo and Bargain Roundup. Those are different, right? One's the free exchange of ideas. The other is the exchange of our junk. So now you've got this, this clash between these two and it, they're, they're living together. And if you think we're bad now, let me give you a couple examples of what was happening in the city of Colossae. So number one, they had this. They worshiped the mother god, Celebe. And it was a sexual cult. And what happens in that sexual cult? Young men would come in and they'd be castrated. That was part of their initiation. The sexual mutilation of bodies. Is that in the news at all today? 
Sounds fairly modern, doesn't it? Satan has been up to the same old tricks for thousands and thousands of years. They worship the god Bacchus. What's he the god of? Wine. You can imagine what that worship might look like. If you can't imagine, watch the show Cops or after church, go to Morrison Park. You'll see what the god Bacchus, <laughs> what it looks like, right? But the third one was the weirdest one. It was a, an Eleusinian mystery cult. And they would bring people in and for three years, they would teach them and train them. We kind of do that today. We call it college. So they would teach them and train them and warp them. And for graduation, they had one of two choices. They could be put in this pit with this metal grate pulled over it and they'd bring a big cow over it, slit the cow's throat and you would bathe in the blood of that dead cow, showing new birth into a new kind of reality. But the second way was they made this substance and it was a fungus that grew on parasitized barley and it produced a chemical called LSA, a cousin of LSD. You can imagine what that worship might look like. Some of you do not need to imagine. You know what it looks like. You lived it yourself, right? So that's happening in this city. You've got this crazy, just, you know, sexual stuff, wine stuff, drug stuff, just nutty. But then the other side is this. Antiochus the Great, about 190 years before Colossae, as the book of Colossians is written, had this problem in Israel with this group of Jews that were real fundamentalists. We call them the Essenes today. Have you heard of the Essenes? If you know anything about the Dead Sea Scrolls, they wrote them. So they had checked out of society. They'd left Jerusalem, gone and lived in the desert, just hard, hard lifestyle down there. Dirt poor. And they just wrote the Bible. That's all they did. And they lived very strict lives. They were vegan. They did not get married. If they did get married, it was simply for the division of labor. You could not have sex with your spouse. So you got some very frustrated men. No meat, no sex, right? So... They called themselves the last of the last generation. They were an end of the world, doom cult. So Antiochus just said, I'm tired of you being here. He lifted them up and transported them and moved them to Colossae. So you've got like in the same city, you've got this guy with a sandwich board and a megaphone proclaiming the end of the world right next to this naked, drugged out hippie asking for money. That's crazy, right? Sounds like downtown's grand spouse to me. <laughs> right? So interesting. So here's this clash. You've got these two. Inflation's up, hard to make price, like just city in decline, can't find jobs, difficulty. Two groups that are on opposite polar sides. And you would think they would kill each other, but they don't. Guess what they do? They get married. You're saying, I know a couple just like that. Ah, the one side, peace, bro. The other side, frantic. The one side, it's the end of the world. The other side, it's not the end of the world. One wishes it was the end of the world, but it's not, right? We all know this. Where did they get married? In the church. Because the good news comes. Dude, this pastor will look at him and he begins to proclaim it. 
and people from both sides get saved and they come into the church and guess what they bring with them? A bunch of baggage. Have you noticed people bring baggage into church? Right, that's why I get strange emails. You bring baggage in. So they bring these baggage in and they're trying to work out like, how do we do this? So Colossians is marriage counseling for this crazy marriage. That's what it is. It's Paul saying, these are the essentials. This is out, this is in. That's what he's gonna say. Do this, don't do that. It's brilliant. So that's, that's the city. Number two, you've got the composer. Paul hears about this. He's actually in prison at this time. He's in Rome. He's in prison. Hears about it through a friend. And so he pens this letter. And Paul is the most unlikely of authors, isn't he? Because he begins in the Bible as a hater and ends as the greatest heralder of the good news. If you don't know his story, in Acts chapter seven, there's the first murder of a Christian, a guy named Stephen. And Paul is the guy overseeing the murder of Stephen. And then Paul, it's not enough just to persecute the church in Jerusalem. He wants to franchise his murder. So he starts going out to other cities and franchising his murder. And he's heading to Damascus to go there. And Jesus Christ has an appointment with him, knocks him to the ground and says, enough. You're hurting me when you do this. When the body of Christ gets persecuted, Jesus takes it personal. And so Paul gets saved. But the church is like suspect. Well, you've been killing my friends. No, I want to go to church now. So he comes into church and like everyone, well, no one bows their head except for Paul. They're like watching him. They frisk him at the door. Like what's underneath your vest, bro? But for two decades, Paul proves he is legit by his blood. He is beaten with rods. He's stoned and left for dead. He is tortured, he is starved, he is imprisoned. On and on, read 2 Corinthians 11, just this list of what happens to Paul. He proves it, he never caves, he never loses his faith. Now what gave this man the fortitude to stick with it through real difficult time? What made Paul be able to keep being Jesus Christ crashed us dummy, right? Like, what was it? If my job was to be dropped off in the ocean and barely make it for three days, and then as a reward, be captured and put into prison to rot, I think I'm getting a different job. Not Paul. Why? Read verse one again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. And when I just told you all that Paul's gone through, all the difficulty he has been, the beating, the torture, the starving, does that make you fear God's will at all? Anyone in here ever think, you know what? If I gave myself completely to God's will, he would make my life miserable. You ever feel that way? You ever afraid of God's will? Pretty common. People in the Bible were afraid of God's will. Do you know that? A bunch of really big names, when God calls them, they're like, no thanks. I'll show you. Moses is one of them. Moses has this long dialogue with God and his final excuse is this one right here. You can read it in Exodus if you want to. Moses says this. Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent. Either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. Listen, 
It hasn't changed in five minutes. I'm still not able to speak, right? But I'm slow of speech and of tongue. If you know this, God actually gets mad at Moses. Enough excuses. Stop making excuses. I made your mouth. Get with it. Moses doesn't want to do God's will. Jeremiah. This is right when Jeremiah is called. This is Jeremiah's excuse. Then I said, oh, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak for I'm only a kid. That's his excuse. Ezekiel is called. After he is called, it says this, I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. Ezekiel throws a pity party for seven days after he's called. I don't know if I want God's will. That's scary. Jonah's called, what does Jonah do? Right? Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. No thanks, I'm out of here. I can go on and on and on. Right? We all have this, this, you know what? Life is comfortable now. Life is safe now. Life is good now. If I actually gave myself wholly to God's will, I don't think I'll be safe anymore. I'm afraid of that. You can add my name to the list. Like I can remember, I grew up in a church, just nutty fundamentalists, right? We couldn't celebrate Christmas or Easter because those were pagan holidays, you know, there's terrible. How could you possibly use those as opportunities to share Jesus? No way, you know, you can't become all things to all people for all means, no way, you can't, don't do that. So just don't do that. Uh, we weren't allowed to have a TV. We had to dress in a certain kind of way, just, you know, very, very strict. No, 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 no. But I can remember as an eight-year-old sitting there in that church, Pastor Floyd preaching and thinking, in this little church of 40 people, one day I'll do that. One day I'll stand up in front of people and tell them everything they can't do. I can't wait, right? Like I knew it. I knew there was something. I knew that. But then I ran like Jonah. I'm gonna get a job and I'm gonna make money. So OSU, mechanical engineering, graduate, 95. And I was trying to figure out like, what do I do? Had this job opportunity at General Motors in Detroit. But guess where I did not want to live? Detroit. So I'm like, oh man, great opportunity but I don't think I wanna live there. And I got a call on a Monday night from a guy, Clyde, my friend then, now my brother-in-law. He's like, hey, Matt, listen, I'm doing this wilderness trails thing and uh, they need another volunteer. Come tomorrow morning, let's go do it. I'm like, this is before Google. So I was like, what is wilderness trails? He goes, oh, it's this ministry that grabs really at-risk kids from like the OYA and from like Pitchford Boys Home and foster care and, you know, really bad kids. And, and then we take these boys up into the Sky Lakes Wilderness and we do this hike for five days with them. I said, why would you do that? That sounds like a horror movie, like everyone dies, right? That, I don't know, <laughs> right? But I'm like, okay, I'll do it. So it was, man, it was a battle. No doubt, these were kids that were, man, they fought each other, they got fistfights with each other. I was part PO, I was part parent, I was part counselor, I was part doctor giving out like Ritalin and Prozac, all these medications. And when it was over, I was ready to depart. I'm like, ah, I'm exhausted. But I remember I went home and I was sitting there in my truck in the driveway. And I thought, that was good, hard but that was good. That was living. And a seed was planted in my heart. And then just maybe two years after that, I'm at church and this young man comes running up to me and just bear hugs me. And I kind of recognize him like, 
Is that, I won't mention his name because I don't know if I should, but it was, it was a kid that had gone on that first trail trip with me. He's like, I am following Jesus now. My life has been transformed. Ah, It's amazing. Thank you. You planted the seed of the gospel in my heart. I went, okay, this is cool. So I said, okay, Lord, I'm gonna do the school of ministry. But I made a deal with God. I said, listen, I'm gonna teach the Bible. I don't wanna be sent to some country that I can't pronounce the name and they eat things that I don't like to eat. So none of that, right? I'll teach the Bible. So I go to school ministry and, and graduation night, I'm called up, uh, the leadership there is there and they're like, here's what we want. We want you to be a missionary in Vanuatu. I'm like, don't they eat giant bats there? I'm like, that sounds like I don't want to. I don't want to do that, right? But I fasted and I prayed. I felt like God said, do it. And was it hard? Yeah, I think I nearly died there. It's a long story, but it nearly died there. No doubt, hard. Best year of my unmarried life. Brilliant, right? So fast forwarding, a lot in there. Edgewater starts. Now I'm teaching the Bible. Okay, Lord, yep, this is what I give you. Teaching the Bible. That's what I'm doing. Safe, easy, teach the Bible. And if you know, what happened was we got cornered into foster care because I think it's the only way that it was gonna happen. My brother lost his children and they were gonna go somewhere that we didn't know And so we opened our home. My wife and my kids were all into it. I'm like, "Ah, okay, fine, right? So bring in my niece and my nephew and they're with us. And then grandparents raise up and say, hey, we wanna take them after like six months or seven months. And we thought, well, let's keep doing this. And we did. And it made my heart bigger. It made me less selfish. It made me less about me and more about other people. I started to notice that. And I said, okay, Lord, we'll do foster care. And we've had kids in Arrow and Terrain adopted by our friends. Yesterday morning, my son Myron goes to Arrow's birthday party. Like, that's really amazing. The connections that have happened to this. Okay, I'll do foster care. And then we got a phone call. Hey, we've got a three-year-old. And his little brother who was just born addicted to heroin and he's at the NICU in Medford. Do you wanna take him? I said, no. No, I'm 45, man, drug baby, no, Uh, they're hard. My wife is like, yes. All my kids are like, yes, we have to take them. I'm like, God, really? You're dividing a family right now. I thought you loved the family, right? Why are you picking on me? Goodness. So my wife starts going over every night to Medford and holding baby Harry and all that. And he came home and my goodness, drug babies are hard had RSV, just always just unhealthy. And hours and hours, my wife would be up at night holding him and walking with him and just like waking me up. I'm like, come on. (laughs) But something happened. He became one of my favorites. One of my, he has a laugh. That's unreal. I know I've played this before, but it's on my favorite playlist. So you get to watch baby Harry laugh again.
my wife worked her tail off to make up for everything he lost in the womb. Like the doctor's like, he is thriving. Wow, brilliant. I got all the easy stuff. Like he would, I would come home from work and he would shuffle over to me. He didn't really crawl, I kind of shuffled. And then he would just reach up with his one hand and he'd just hold onto my pant leg till I picked him up. Like just the most, he just amazing, right? Not easy, I'm not telling you it's easy, but amazing, good, right? Your, your heart gets bigger. When you say yes to God's will, what happens is you get bigger, you get changed, you become what God wants you to become and actually what you want to become, that's what happens. That's why Paul says, by the will of God, I stuck this because it's God's will. And this is what he says to a group of people that he's talking to about everything he went through. It's Acts 20, 24. But none of these things move me. What? You're gonna rot in prison, you're gonna get your head chopped off. None of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with misery, with joy, with joy. And then at the very end of his life, he says this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4. I have fought the good fight. If there's something I want said about me at the end of my life, right here. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. How good is that? The world promises these things to us. Comfort, ease, security, stability. But you know what? It's cotton candy. It's empty calories. You just need more and more and more of it. God promises steak. It satisfies. It fills. So Paul says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. And then he includes Timothy. Now, did Timothy write the book of Colossians? No. Is Timothy included in the book of Colossians? Yes. He is included in a letter that's going to outlive the city of Colossae. It's going to outlive the Roman Empire. It's going to outlive America. It's going to outlive our solar system. You want a secret to the full life? It's amazing what a man or woman will accomplish, what they will accomplish if they don't care who gets the credit. Paul was always just giving credit away to people. He didn't care. That's why he's so great. 2024, give the credit away and you'll find your own credit score going through the roof. That's what Paul does. And Timothy, love it. There's a composer. Then we get the church. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So here's my question. Saints and faithful. Is that two distinct groups of people? Or is that two words describing one group of people? I'll put it another way. To be a saint, do you need to be faithful? Is that like the qualifications for sainthood? Here's what I think. I think it's two different groups of people. One is a gift. The other is a response to that gift. That's what you see. So saints, how do you become a saint? 
The Catholic church says this, they have some qualifications. Number one, you gotta be Catholic. So I'm out. Number two, you gotta die. Kind of a bummer, it's gotta happen. Number three, people have to like you. You gotta be venerated. So you need to appear on a necklace, maybe uh, hung around a rear view mirror. Maybe, you know, you gotta, your, your image has to kind of appear. You gotta be venerated. And then fourthly, you have to do a miracle. And it has to be verified. So they'll bring people out with magnifying glasses and, and high-speed internet, and they'll check out to make sure you actually did perform that miracle, right? And if you check off all four of those, you're a saint. You get a hospital named after you. You can sell candles with your image on it. Pretty cool. Is that biblical? I, I, I read the Bible a lot. I haven't found it yet. Okay? So what's a saint? The word means holy. Am I holy because I'm faithful or am I holy for some other reason? Why are you, why am I holy? We're holy for one reason, not because of something I did or you did. We're holy because Jesus Christ made us holy, because of Jesus Christ's faithfulness, because of Jesus Christ's work on the cross that we by faith simply get imputed to us. We become holy because of the work of Jesus Christ alone, not because I'm faithful, right? It's our identity. We are a saint, period. No matter how we act, right? Presidents don't always act presidential. Governors don't always act governentially, if that's a word. <laughs> Kings don't always act kingly. Diplomats don't always act diplomatically. But guess what? They're still a president, a governor, a diplomat, a king. Christians don't always act saintly. But guess what? They're still a saint because it is their identity that's given to them by the work of Jesus Christ alone when he purchased us by his work on Calvary. Hard period. Saint. I am Saint Matt. I'm putting it on my business card. You can too, right? There's a word for that in the Bible. It's called justification. Justification, a couple ways to think about it. Just as if I'd never sinned or being accepted by God. Both of them, good definitions. You are accepted by God. You are cleansed, you are made holy because of the work of Jesus Christ. And it happens at the moment you believe in him, you're done, you're a saint, period. You don't gotta check off a list. It's the work of Jesus alone to the saints and to the faithful. This is a response to the work of Jesus Christ. I want to be faithful to my king. And there's a second term in the Bible. It's called sanctification. Sanctification begins when you get saved and it goes all the way till eternity. And sanctification simply means this, behaving like God or becoming holy. You become what you are, sanctification, by a process, step by step by step, being changed and conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And then it says this, when we see him on that glorious day, we shall be like him. Sanctification finished. Brilliant. And you gotta get the order right. You are justified and then you're sanctified. Religion switches those two. Sanctify yourself, get yourself fixed up, be faithful, go through three years of training and maybe if you graduate with honors, maybe then God will accept you and you can be on the inside. 
we always, we always get it wrong in our heads because that's the way the world works, but that's not the way the gospel works. It's the opposite. Be accepted and then you'll be changed. I sometimes struggle, I'll almost change it. I remember this happened to me years ago, Fruitdale Elementary, I'd preached a message. Gal came up to me afterward, visibly kind of emotional. She said this, Matt, if I get saved, do I have to forgive this man? And she explained what this man had done to her. Because she said, I can't do that. I cannot forgive this man. And immediately in my mind came Matthew 6, 15, where Jesus says, if you do not forgive people that trespass against you, God will not forgive you for your trespasses. Matthew 6, 15. And I almost said it. I said, wait a second. I'm putting sanctification before justification. So this is what I told that lady. I said, no, you do not. You are justified freely by the grace of Jesus Christ, but you will forgive him because Jesus will give you a new heart and a new spirit and a new power and you'll find the grace to forgive him because that's what will happen to you. Never reverse them, never reverse them. It's almost like this and I'm done. Like a gym membership. It's January. So gym memberships go through the roof, right? People you've never seen show up at the gym, right? So you got a gym membership this year. Maybe your spouse gave it to you, a little hint, whatever it is. So here's what can happen. You can be like, you know what? I don't want to go to the gym yet because I'm out of shape. You know, and everybody at the gym, they're, they're muscly men and slim ladies. And, I, you know, I'm going to get in shape before I go to the gym. What would happen to you? You never go to the gym, Right? Right, the very place you need to go to get in shape, you won't go because you don't think you belong there, right? That's what religions do. Sometimes people will say this to me, Matt, I don't belong in church. You know, it's all the pretty good people that are there. All the put together people are at church. And I always look at them and say, have you been to church? I'm in church all the time. I don't see those people. I don't know who you're talking about, right? It's a satanic lie. That's what it is. So Jesus says, you come to me just as you are broken. You come to me just as you are sinful. You come to me just as you are unholy. And I accept you and I change you. That's what he says. This is essential Jesus. This is what this church needs to know. It's what he says in Matthew 11. Let me read it for you. Come to me, all who are valedictorians, all who have it together, all who labor and are heavy laden, beat down, exhausted, broken, and I will give you rest, the gift, justification. Take my yoke upon you, sanctification. Yoke with me, partner with me, learn from me, because I'm gentle and lowly in heart. I'm not here to crush you or destroy you. I'm here to build you and bless you, and you'll find a second rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is essential, Jesus. You never leave these. 